Red light, green light, one, two, three. This volatility is messing with me. Is this the bottom or just a bounce? Are the bears about to trounce? Investors don't have an ounce of patience, that is, for profits in decline or a weak bottom line or margin compression or slowing daily sessions. You better make an impression with your earnings this season. Sellers looking for a reason to shed your shares. No one even cares how many users you boast. Meta shares are toast. The fangs lost their bite. Maybe this just might be the start of something new, a market in evolution, a real rotation, a hope for resolution, a chance to look long-term to set up for success, a time to take a ride on the Investopedia Express. As the saying goes, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen, and it's hot up on the stock market stove right now. U.S. markets are coming off their first positive week all year, but it's anything but a slow burn. The Nasdaq and S&P 500 continue their wild daily swings as the biggest individual stocks are jumping in and out of the frying pan as investors weigh mixed earnings reports. Shares of meta platforms, which we used to call Facebook and Netflix, are down more than 30% each after warning of slowing growth and user activity. Maybe we're getting back to work. The January non-farm payrolls report showed 467,000 new jobs added last month, way higher than estimates for gains of around 150,000. The unemployment rate crept back up to 4% from 3.9% because, well, more people said they're looking for work. Is the labor market stabilizing at long last? Keep in mind, 22 million U.S. jobs were lost between March and April of 2020. 19.1 million jobs have been added back, now 2.9 million below that high. And there are 10.9 million job openings in the United States right now. Strong signs of progress have pushed the U.S. 10-year Treasury yield as high as 1.93%. That's up from about 1.5% at the start of the year, and the interest rate hikes are coming. The first will likely be next month as the Federal Reserve prepares its battle plan to combat inflation. But inside the stock market, the mighty have fallen. The NICE FANG Plus Index, which tracks those popular stocks along a handful of others, has tumbled 10% this year, underperforming the broader market. Netflix and Meta are off at least 38% from their highs, and even though shares of Amazon popped last week on a blowout earnings report, the stock is down 5.4% to start the year. Miss on earnings, and investors are bringing the stick. Meta Platforms lost $241 billion in market cap in just one day last week, the largest daily loss of all time. As the great Jimmy Cliff likes to say, the harder they come, the harder they fall. But words matter in this and in every stock market. So before we turn into Chicken Little this close to migration season, let's make sure we're using them correctly as we refer to these losses. If you own an S&P 500 index fund, you're experiencing a mild sell-off or even a minor correction depending on the sector you own. If you own the NASDAQ 100, it's in a technical correction down 14% from recent all-time highs. If you own small caps, you're in a bear market down more than 20% from recent highs. If you own shares of Meta or Facebook as we call it or the big cryptocurrencies, you're experiencing a market crash. If you own hypergrowth and meme stocks, they are in a depression down 80% or more from their all-time highs. Remember the math. If a security falls 33%, it takes a 50% rise to get back to those levels. If it falls 50%, it takes a 100% rise to get back to par. Before you start bargain shopping, remember that equation if you're trying to recoup losses. If you're rebuilding your portfolio with new names, get that shopping list ready because there are oversold stocks all over the market. And some stocks are getting cheaper, not because their share prices are falling. Some are splitting, like Alphabet, the parent company of Google. Alphabet announced last week it would split its stock 20 to 1. That means come July, Alphabet shareholders will receive 19 more shares for everyone that they own. It doesn't mean they'll be 20 times richer. The price of the stock they hold will drop by a proportional amount. If the stock split were to happen today, Alphabet's share price would fall from $2,865 a share to $143 a share, 20 for 1. 
Why is Alphabet doing this? To multiply its shares outstanding and lower the price, which could lure more retail investors to want to buy it. Of course, we can already buy fractional shares of any stock we want through most online brokers, but some investors don't like little pieces. They like their own slice. And history has shown that big stock splits are usually followed by healthy buying. According to Vander Research, when Apple split its stock 4 to 1 in July of 2020, retail investors boosted their purchases from $150 million per week to nearly $1 billion. When Tesla split its stock 5 to 1 in August of 2020, retail investors went on a similar buying spree, going from 30 to $40 million per week in purchases to $700 million. But that might not be the only reason. Alphabet may be trying to pave a path on the way to the Dow Industrials, which is a price-weighted index as opposed to the S&P 500 and NASDAQ, which are market-weighted indexes. Alphabet, at its current share price, would overwhelm all of the 30 companies in the Dow Industrials, which are mostly not really industrial companies anymore. By lowering its price and increasing the amount of investors who own the stock, it might fit in nicely along Apple, Disney, Microsoft, IBM, and the Home Depot in the Dow Industrials. When a stock gets added to a major market index like the Dow Industrials or S&P 500, index investors large and small have to own it, and that's usually a very good sign for its share price in the near term. And keep in mind that only 27 other stocks in the S&P 500 have share prices above $500 besides Alphabet. This could be a spring full of stock splits. Let's get set up for another busy week ahead. We investors will have little time to keep scratching our heads from last week's shocker of a jobs report because new inflation numbers are coming this week. The Department of Labor will deliver the read on consumer prices on Wednesday, and economists are forecasting those prices to rise 7.3%. That would be the highest rate of inflation since 1981. The top three songs in America that year, Betty Davis Eyes by Kim Carnes, Endless Love with Lionel Richie and Diana Ross, and Lady by Kenny Rogers. Good year for love songs, but a terrible year for an inflation-weary nation. What is inflation doing to consumer confidence? It fell to a 10-year low last month, and we'll get a fresh reading on it this Friday when the University of Michigan will release a preliminary reading of its Consumer Sentiment Index for the month of February. Chinese stock markets are back open for business following the Lunar New Year celebrations, and Sweden will become the latest country to lift COVID restrictions. The biggest Nordic nation joins a list of European countries, including Italy, Switzerland, and France, as well as neighbors Denmark, Finland, and Norway, to relax rules under pressure from a pandemic-weary public. On the earnings front, keep a close eye on shares of Peloton. The Wall Street Journal reported late Friday that Amazon approached the exercise machine maker to acquire it, and Nike might also be a potential bidder. Shares spiked 30% on the news, but were down more than 80% since their highs of 2020. Disney also reports quarterly results, and profits are expected to jump 81% from a year ago, recovering from the wipeout in its theme parks last year. But the House of the Mouse has transformed its business under CEO Bob Chapek, and the lion's share of its revenue now comes from its media and entertainment division. To that end, Disney and Marvel have some big movies coming out. Thor, Love and Thunder, and Wakanda Forever, the Black Panther sequel, are both due out this summer, and Disney's hoping we'll stream our way back into the theater and into its theme parks for the action. Wakanda Forever! Wakanda Forever! Late, great Chadwick Boseman. That's right, it's Super Bowl season. The NFL Championship game is coming up this Sunday as the Cincinnati Bengals face off against the Los Angeles Rams. It's kind of exciting this year. Two new teams, the Bengals haven't been to the Super Bowl since 1989, and there will be a lot of betting on the big game this year as well. The American Gaming Association expects this to be the most wagered upon Super Bowl in history, topping last year's game when more than 23 million people bet more than $4.6 billion on one game. With online sports now legal in 21 states, expect the online betting sites like FanDuel, DraftKings, and MGM to have a huge Sunday. 
But what about the other economics of the Super Bowl? Well, I did a little digging on that, and just in case you're curious or you want to drop some knowledge on your friends and family between commercials this Sunday, I give you the economics of the Super Bowl. First of all, the NFL, the National Football League, is made up of its 32 individual teams, all of which have individual ownership structures. It used to operate as a tax-exempt nonprofit until a few years ago, but no longer. It shares its massive media contracts along with a large chunk of gate receipts among those 32 teams. The playoffs are no different. The league collects almost all the ticket revenue from playoff games and simply provides a stipend for home and away teams that covers costs of travel and stadium operations. Home teams keep their share of concession and parking revenue, but that's only a couple of million dollars. The real money comes at the beginning of the season when each team gets around $400 million from the league to spend on salaries, facilities, travel, and everything else. TV networks, CBS, Fox, NBC, and ESPN currently collectively pay $5 billion to carry the NFL's games, and Amazon and Yahoo have streaming rights. The networks alternate years to host the Super Bowl, and this year it's on NBC, which is owned by Comcast. Those networks make a lot of money selling advertising spots for the Super Bowl, and NBC says it has sold out all of its advertising spots for Super Bowl 56, with some ads reaching $7 million for 30 seconds. That's a new record. You're going to see a lot of crypto companies and a lot of electric vehicle companies this year in between downs. That's no surprise. But what about the players? How much do they make? Players from the winning team will get $150,000 along with the rest of the spoils that come with the victory of winning the Super Bowl. The losing team's players will get $75,000. For players to qualify for full postseason earnings, including the Super Bowl bonus, they have to be on the team's active or inactive list for at least three previous games per the collective bargaining agreement the players' union signed with the league. That's right. NFL players are union members. And if you're a player that's made it all the way to the Super Bowl, you get paid for every round of the playoffs your team wins. $30,000 for the wildcard round, $33,000 for the divisional playoffs, $59,000 for the conference championship, and $150,000 if your team wins the Super Bowl. That's for every player on the active 53-man roster. If you make it all the way to the Super Bowl and your team wins, the postseason just netted you $275,000. The past few weeks have put investors' patience and resolve to the test. A correction in the NASDAQ and the Russell 2000, 1,000-point intraday swings in the Dow Industrials, the fading of meme stocks and biotechs, you name it, one test after the other. Long-term investors know to ride these waves out, but no matter how patient you are, no matter how long your time horizon, volatility and the lack of visibility ratchet up anxiety and awaken our animal spirits. But what if we really leaned into the long term? What if we zoomed way out and looked at the macro trends that are actually more important to market cycles than the daily ticks of the market? Our guest this week is the ultimate long-term market voyager. Jeremy Siegel is the Russell E. Palmer Professor of Finance at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also the co-creator of the Siegel Wisdom Tree Longevity Model Portfolio with Wisdom Tree. He's a best-selling author, including his epic book, Stocks for the Long Run, which is in the Investing Hall of Fame. He's a frequent guest across business media. Media, and he is our very, very special guest on the Investopedia Express. Welcome, Professor Siegel. I'm happy to be here, Caleb. I've been following your work for so many years and so honored to have a few minutes with you to share with our listeners. But let's talk about how investing through the pandemic changed the way we think about investing for the long term. Everything feels so compressed these days. Markets correct, then reverse, then fall apart, all in a matter of days or weeks. Is this normal? Well, the pandemic certainly was not normal. Uh, Once in a 100 years, I have to go back to Spanish flu. So that was very unusual. And what was also very unusual was the tremendous amount of fiscal and monetary stimulus 
I think too much. And if you've been following me, I, I said way back in 2020, we're going to have inflation in 2021 and beyond. And I think that that is definitely what we're seeing now. But, you know, money is a stock's you know, good friend until the Fed finally decides to step on the brakes. And they're doing so extremely slowly at this point. Yeah, well, we all know the narrative by now. And I've been listening to what you've been saying about this. The Fed's taking the easy money away. It plans to raise interest rates three, four, five, maybe six times, shrink its balance sheet, all in an effort to cool that inflation and let the economy walk on its own two feet again. I've heard you say the Fed's too late to the party or it hasn't showed up with enough water to cool down the economy. Explain that. Yeah, it seems very clear to me. If you take a look at the Fed's long run Fed funds rate, they have for many years said it's two and a half percent. That's supposed to be a Fed funds rate with a two percent inflation and uh, a normal labor market. Well, now we have seven percent inflation. And as Chairman Powell himself said, one of the strongest labor markets in history. And, and he's talking, uh, we're talking about going up to one percent. That just doesn't make sense to me. We've got to raise the interest rate more if we want to slow this inflation down. So raising the interest rates more, we haven't even raised it yet. And markets have completely freaked out just over the past several weeks here because, again, that easy money is going away. And we've been living in this ultra low interest rate environment for the past couple of years. But dial it back even longer, like I know you like to do. These are very, very low interest rates. We're not even close to where we were in the 80s or the 70s. So that has also been the the wind in the sails of the technology sector, growth stocks, but value stocks are finally in favor after about 12 years of riding in the back of the truck. Does this rotation have legs? Are we in a really new super cycle here where value is going to trump growth for a little bit? Well, I hope so, but I do think it's a little premature. I mean, we had a big value move from September of 2020 until March of 2021, that was actually bigger than what we've had in January. Now, I do think that the circumstances, rising rates, reopening the economy, search for yield that's inflation protected, which is basically what stocks offer, will give value stocks their boost. I I think that rotation is here. But I've called it before prematurely, so I'm certainly not going to bet my life on it. But I think the conditions are very favorable for a value rotation in 2022. I don't disagree, but if if you look at the way history and the history of the markets play out, that seems to be the way it might it might play. But things are so different these days, uh, Professor Siegel. Markets, you know, again, they move so quickly right now, again, from reversal, bear market, bull market, correction, back to growth again. Are investors, especially this sort of new class of investors, so addicted to technology stocks and to growth stocks that no matter what, they're always going to have that propensity for it. And they don't even think about value stocks in the way that an investor my age or your age might think about it. Yeah. That's true. There's two stories here. One story is technology has delivered. And, you know, I'm talking about the Microsofts and I'm I'm talking about those that are in the S&P 500. You have to have four consecutive quarters of earnings. I'm not talking about those that are selling at 500 times projected revenues with no earnings. Those, of course, did get smashed uh, late last year and in January down 50 to 70 percent. So we're talking about, you know, the established tech. And they have delivered earnings growth that is remarkable. They have taken on premiums that are high, not crazy, but certainly high. 
the pandemic certainly has been a favorable trend for technology as we all went to Zoom and and went to the stay-at-home technology type of products. So this is different than the crazy boom of the dot-com era, where then technology got much more out of line with its earnings growth, even S&P technology than today. That said, we still have a pretty extreme valuation difference between growth and value. Seems like every 25 years, Caleb, this comes about. The mid-1970s, we had the nifty 50 institutions piled into the growth stocks at that time. Then that faded quickly. And then, of course, 25 years after that was the dot-com boom. Now, nearly 25 years later, we had this boom. This is the best supported of all the booms, but still, I think, is a stretch. We're not going to have the NASDAQ go from 5,000 to 1,000, which is an 80% drop. But I did come on the air, say that I did think that NASDAQ would go into bear markets territory and S&P into correction territory. I'm not predicting anything like what Jeremy Grantham is saying. And I'm saying this because I am of the belief that the Fed is going to be forced to tighten more than what the market now thinks. Let's talk about investing broadly in the 60-40 portfolio, which I grew up with. I know you grew up with. You've written a lot about it. This is where a lot of people, especially my age and older, have sort of placed their money. This is how they've allocated. Is that dead given the environment we're in? Yeah, and it is. And and it's really interesting, Caleb, because I am writing right now sixth edition of my book, Stocks for Long Run, and a whole big section on the 60-40 portfolio and whether it is still right. And if you look at the evidence, it is not sufficient. In fact, and it was really surprising myself, I did Monte Carlo simulations of retirement portfolios, which is often the 60-40. And it turns out that with today's forward-looking stock and bond returns, and I was even pessimistic about bonds, giving them a 4.5% real rate of return, which is 2.5% below its long-run average. But we know that bonds are going to have negative real rate, rates of return. I mean, we, we see that in the tips. It turns out that the probability of running out of money for a given rate of withdrawal is actually 80 to 100% stocks. You minimize that probability. In other words, by going more towards bonds, the income is so poor that the probability that you're going to run out of money is actually higher. And so with a, in a low rate world going forward, and I do think stock and bond returns are going to be lower than their historical average, it turns out you need more stocks in your portfolio, not less if you want to achieve a certain withdrawal plan. And then it becomes all about diversification and picking those the right sectors and, and finding the right timing and the right cycles. But Professor, bear markets, sell-offs, these are not bugs of the stock market. They're features, as you know. You've been writing about this for years and studying this for years. But they often provide the foundation for really strong rallies that can last for years. Is that what might be happening here, the laying of a new foundation for another cyclical bull market? Or are we just unwinding all of the madness and all the liquidity that that's come into the economy and into the market in the past couple of years. You're perfectly right. People say, why is the, what someone we economists call the equity premium? Why has history shown stocks so superior to bonds and fixed income? And it is the fact that we have to live through volatility. That's a scary thing. And 
We get a lot of people that are just scared out of it. When it happens, you've got to, you know, say, listen, this is a feature, as you said, of capital markets and has been for over 200 years. And my data goes back 1802. To now we have 220 years. Bear markets have been part of it. And as we speak today, uh, we're not even in a bear market. We're not even in an S&P correction yet. So one could be scared. And if you were in the meme stocks and you were in those mega high flyers based on revenue, yes, you've been in a massive bear market for six months. But if you've been in the S&P 500, you're not in a bear market. You've had some volatility, but you're not in a bear market. So This is one thing. If you stick to a more diversified, I'm a big indexer. I'm a big believer in indexation. You will not suffer the volatility. You will not get 10 bagger gains in six months and 12 months. But take a look. How many people, money managers, beat the S&P 500 in 2021? We're going to get an accounting probably in the next few weeks. I I would say that almost no one did. Now, even the hedge funds, it it was extraordinarily hard to beat that index last year. It's the tortoise and hare situation. The indexers in the long run have outperformed 90% of the active money managers. My advice always is if you love to play the market and you you like that short-term action, take 20%. Play what you think is right, but put that other 80% in a set of well-diversified investments. Could be a straight capitalization-weighted index fund. I prefer weighting by dividends or earnings, which is a value-tilted diversification. But that's what I prefer as a long-term investment. Let's talk about investing for people at certain age groups. If you were in your 20s or 30s today, constructing your portfolio, what would you be putting in it? I have a feeling you're going to be talking about index funds and ETFs. Yeah, index funds and ETFs. And, you know, ETFs are really index funds that are tradable. You know, started the uh, Vanguard, the first one, and and then ETFs came on strong in in, uh, the late 1990s, early 2000s but they're really tradable index funds. And that is the way to build the wealth in the long run. As I say, if you like to play, take 20, 30, even 30% of your portfolio, but you have to have the bulk that you're going to save for your future and retirement put away in a well-diversified. And you're perfectly right, Caleb. You mentioned do more than the U.S. U.S. is 50% of the world's equity. The rest of Europe, Japan, and emerging markets, which are much cheaper than the U.S. at the present time. Yes, they don't have the technology in general. I mean, there's a few technology firms, certainly in, in, in some, uh, some of these countries. But generally, they're selling at multiples, 16, 17, 18 times earnings, which is quite very reasonable in a, in a very low interest rate world. And I do have a lot of international investments. I know it's been painful. I know they have not kept up with the U.S., but just like the shift that I believe will occur to value stocks in 2022, I think will also very likely produce an outperformance of international to U.S. stocks in 2022. 
How about if you're like me, early 50s, you've been investing for the long term. I read your book when I was when I was much younger. I'm heavily into growth indexes and ETFs. Do I need to add some value to my recipe? I would. I would. And I, you know, I think the month of January showed it. You can now, especially uh, the value stocks have greater dividends. If you don't want to pay taxes on the dividends, you know, this is where your IRAs and your, your tax sheltered, just reinvest those dividends. But it's so easy now to have a reinvestment plan, either with ETFs or with standard mutual funds and watch those dividends reinvest. And all of a sudden, you know, you start out with a thousand shares in a few years, you have 1100 and 1200 and that goes up exponentially. That is what accumulates over the long run, the pure growth stocks, and they've done extraordinarily well. Don't get rid of them at all, but, you know, have a much lower dividend yield. You're, you're relying on the capital gains completely in those cases. So diversification, I think, is important. Dividend, earnings growth, compounding, that's the magic fairy dust in the stock market that really builds wealth over the long term as long as you're consistent. You've been preaching that for as long as I've been following you. I got to I gotta know this, Professor. What's your take on cryptocurrencies? What's your take on the Bitcoins of the world in terms of an asset class and in terms of a, a, a way to invest? I've often called crypto the new gold, but there are pluses and minuses on the new gold. There's more regulation now. There's more competition to Bitcoin now. There's a movement to proof of stake rather than proof of work, which uses a lot less energy. I do not think that Bitcoin is going to be the currency of the future. It's still too slow and too high bid ask spreads and volatility to become that at this point. And part of it, by the way, happens to be our banking system, which can do a a darn better job itself at facilitating fast and costless transfers. So I have to say that I am cautious. I'm pressed with blockchain at recording. I am less certain about it being used as a currency that can tr- transact most everyday transactions. I can't wait to read about it in the, your new edition of your book, which I'm going to pre-order because I cannot wait to get that and to give it out uh, as a present to other people. Professor Siegel, you've influenced so many people and investors in your career. I'm wondering, who was your biggest influence coming up or who's influencing you now? It's a good question. I mean, you know, I, I got my degree in economics, Paul Samuelson at MIT when I got my PhD, and then a colleague of Professor Milton Friedman, The Importance of Free Markets. I would say, and Paul Samuelson himself began writing a lot in finance. And then later on, I mean, one would have to say that when Jack Bogle invented the index fund, the S&P 500, that, that was a game changer. And I've often said, people say, what motivated you to write the first edition of Stocks for a Long Run? And I said, I wanted to write the book you would read after Burton Malkiel's A Random Walk Down Wall Street which I believe is going into its 16th or 17th edition. Uh, Bert has called me up. What a remarkable guy in his 80s and still writing editions. Wonderful, wonderful person. But I, I wanted to write a book that would complement his. So, you know, Jack Bogle, Bert Malkio, and Sir Milton Friedman and Paul Samuelson as my, as my teachers. 
have, have influenced me greatly. That's kind of like a Hall of Fame in and of itself, the Mount Rushmore of economists and, and, and market thinkers. And that's a really good foundation for you. And you have influenced, again, so many people in your career. So we'll, we're definitely talking about you in that same sentence. Uh, Professor Siegel, you know that Investopedia is a site built on its investing terms and its definitions. People come to us to kind of learn those terms as they, as they grow in, as investors. What's your favorite investing term? Oh, that, that's a good thing. But let me say that I appreciate, I often, when I need a quick definition of something, I search on Google and I love it when Investopedia comes up. And in fact, when you ask me, I get many, so many requests. But when you came up on Investopedia, you said, listen, that has done good things for me. Concise definitions, good history. Listen, if I, I can do something back for you, I am happy to do so. So lot, lots of almost any term, uh, you are your go, uh, your go to place. Let me let me tell you. Thank you. Is there any one term that really speaks to your heart that just makes your heart sing when you think about investing that you love teaching to your students or thinking about? I guess one would have to say indexing. I mean, because I think that's the key to diversification, low cost indexing as being the key to diversification. I know it's not fancy. Uh, but I think it stood the test of time. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And folks, you can't see me, but I am melting here with those compliments from Professor Siegel. Professor Jeremy Siegel, the Russell E. Palmer Professor of Finance at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, best-selling author. I'm so excited for your new edition of your great book, Stocks for the Long, Long Run. And I am so honored that you joined us on the Investopedia Express. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Caleb. Hope to talk to you again. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Jim in Daphne, Alabama, right there on Mobile Bay. Jim suggests bifurcation this week, and we like that term given a lot of the splitting we've seen lately. What is bifurcation? Well, according to Investopedia, bifurcation is the splitting of a larger whole or main body into two or smaller separate units. Bifurcation can occur when a company divides into separate divisions, thereby creating two new companies that can each sell or issue shares to stockholders. Companies may seek bifurcation for certain tax advantages or to focus more resources on the part of the business that's showing more growth. This past quarter was the first time Meta Platforms broke out results for its social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, and its Reality Lab segment, which includes the Oculus Virtual Reality business, gaming, and the Metaverse. While both segments are still under Meta Platforms and feed into its overall results, we might very well see Meta spin off Reality Labs into a separately traded public company. We could see that with Amazon.com and Amazon Web Services and a whole host of other companies. Good suggestion, Jim. We're sending you down some sweet-looking Investopedia socks for your next trip down to Bordreau's Cajun Grill in Daphne off Route 78. In celebration of Black History Month, we're going to let the late, great Toni Morrison take us out this week. The great American author received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the National Humanities Medal, the Nobel Prize in Literature, and the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, among other awards. But she remained humble her entire career. Here's Toni Morrison in a 1998 interview with the Australian journalist Jana Wendt. Do you these days sit back when you're writing, read over a phrase that you've just written and say, my God, that's beautiful? Occasionally. I'm aware of what's very beautiful, things that I think came off really well. And I'm also aware of the sentences that I have written that at last I know how I should rewrite them, even long after the book's been published. (laughs) Even one of the greatest American writers of all time was always aware that she could get better. What a legend. 
Special thanks to Professor Jeremy Siegel for joining us this week. That's a big-ticket interview for me. And thanks to all of you for tuning in, writing in, and riding along this journey with me. We'll talk to you again a little further on down the line. Music